Hey, Friday Night Lights fans. It's Not Only Football, Friday Night Lights and Beyond is an episode-by-episode discussion of the hit TV series Friday Night Lights, hosted by yours truly, Scott Porter, who played Jason Street on the show, and my two wonderful co-hosts, me, Zach Guilford, a.k.a. Matt Saracen, and me, Mae Whitman, a.k.a. someone who wasn't on the show but really, really loves it a lot. We will also bring on some special guests, answer your questions, and tell you about what's going on in our lives today. It's not only football. Friday Night Lights and Beyond is available now wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose! Now, Americans spend a lot of their time indoors, and according to the EPA, indoor air could be two to five times worse than what you're breathing polluted air outside. According to the 2020 report, nearly half of pollution... Nine out of ten people breathe air that exceeds WHO pollution limits. And then while we talk about the 20,000 breaths per day we take, that's almost 3,000 gallons of polluted air. The number one allergy trigger is airborne allergens such as pollen, pet dander, dust mite, mold. The solution is Air Doctor. Air Doctor filters out dangerous contaminants and allergens so your lungs don't have to. Air Doctor uses an Ultra HEPA filter. Ultra HEPA filters have been independently tested to remove 99.99% of tested bacteria and viruses. And allergens, of course, can vary in size, but the average is about 25 microns. Air Doctor virtually removes 100% of particles as small as 0.003 microns. Air Doctor features whisper jet fans, 30% quieter than the fans found in the ordinary filters. I'm telling you, this sits by our television. We're not aware it's running, except that we're not having all the allergic reactions. We use it every day. Air Doctor comes with a no-questions-asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus the shipping. So go to airdoctorpro.com and use the promo code DREW, and depending on the model, you'll get up to 40% off. You're saving up to 40%. Lock this special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O, airdoctorpro.com, and use that promo code, Drew. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast. We appreciate you guys supporting the people that support us. We keep doing this little show here. At the Corolla Empire, uh, I'd also love you guys to check out the uh, streaming show we do Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, most weeks, uh, at 3 o'clock Pacific time. We've been, uh, like I've told you repeatedly, we've been interviewing some of the some of the silenced voices from the last couple of years to see what we can learn from them. I, I disagree with some of this stuff, or I like, in other words, I'm, not that I disagree with it, I, I'm not like fully signed up for some of their opinions, but I learn something every time I, I hear from an alternative point of view. And I think it's important for all of us to get used to that, uh, particularly in today's world. So there's that. Uh, don't forget After Dark. If you guys haven't found that yet, that is uh, sort of a new incarnation of Loveline. It's uh, over at your mom's house with Tom Segura and his wife, Christina P. Also interesting comedians I get to interview there. And finally, uh, you will or will have seen me in a Fox Network show called Special Forces, The Ultimate Challenge, I think is what they're calling it, where me and 15 others – whom people you recognize, spent uh, spent 10 days, or some of them did, spent 10 days in the Wadi Rum Desert of Jordan training as special ops recruits. And this was a no-bullshit experience, but one of the reasons I did it, uh, amongst many others, now once I can really talk about this thing, I will tell you all about it. Um, one of the reasons I did it was to shine a light on what our military has to do to uh, achieve the level of expertise that so many of them achieve and sort of make top of mind veteran issues. Uh, I think the veteran issues are becoming, you know, in this day when people are not responding as recruits and are not getting involved with the military and are sort of questioning our government and all, all the craziness we've been going through, now is the time we got to double down on reflecting about those that have been given us service, and particularly those that need help after they've rendered service. So I thought it'd be a great interview to bring in Ryan Onda. Ryan and I met in Florida. I was giving a talk at a at a giant, large treatment center that really was impressive. I mean, my God, I'm so delighted to see large programs that are functioning well and actually helping people. And he came up to me and he said, you know, I represent the Semper Fi service dogs. It's a rescue shelter dogs. He gets he rescues shelter dogs and trains them as service dogs. And uh, he, well, I'll tell you what he does with them in just a second, but let me tell you a bit about him. He himself is a Marine veteran. 
He learned uh, a variety of techniques over the last 20 years, um, including going to study with the monks of New Skeet. I want to hear about that opera training method. He's a peer facilitator under Roger Marshall, Jr., National Director of Operations Outreach for the Birdwell Foundation for PTSD. And that's important because PTSD is what is targeted with some of these rescue dogs and service dogs. Semperfy Service Dogs, the website is semperfyservicedogs.org. Ryan, welcome. Tell us about this. Hi, Dr. Drew. Thanks for, thank you for having me. I don't know. Do we have a screen issue? We do. We're frozen. We're frozen, but I hear you fine. So let's just stay okay. for the okay, – that's all that matters is that I can hear you. Okay. Great. Um, my name's – oh, there we go. My name's Ryan Onda. Thanks again for having me. Um, I love your show. Um, I guess – I don't know if you have questions for me, if you want well, me tell, to. Well, I want the whole story. I, I want to know, first, I want to know how, I, I don't know you well enough to know whether you yourself had PTSD, whether you responded to some sort of service animal interventions, how you got this idea, and how you operationalize it. Sure. Uh, this all started, I, I got my start. I do suffer from PTSD as well as TBI uh, that I did get in the Marine Corps while I was serving in the Marine Corps. I don't like to get into that too much, but um, we all have our stories. Um, and, and a lot of people call it PTSD. It's really PTS. I want to get that. It's not a disorder. It's post-traumatic stress, but everybody knows it as PTSD, so I'll probably say that a million times. Well, but let me, let me, um, though, let me though, push back a little bit as a clinician. You're absolutely correct that, that post-traumatic stress is normal. And, and there's something called acute traumatic stress, which is something that happens to everybody that goes through a horrible experience. And there can often be post-traumatic residual, but true PTSD, just just for the sake of being clinically accurate, are is usually people that had childhood trauma that's reactivated, frankly. And so it's a it's a long history of complex trauma, not just related to the the incident in in the military. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes, sir. Um, so basically, the way we got started, um, I also um, I'm nine years sober, so. Late in my sobriety, um, I had been an insurance broker. I was doing very well at all the jobs I had, but not even realizing it was PTSD, really, to be honest, or or whatever, by TBI. I had all that, you know, the, the symptoms of it. You know, I would, I would have hypervigilance. I'd always be, you know, angry or, or, or setting something off, or I'd have a lot of things that would remind me of the trauma that I did go through. And, I, you know, I was hard to deal with. I'll be honest with you. Most people who have PTSD are, or MST or TBI for that matter. Um, so I went from job to job, but I was always very successful at it. And then finally I started, I owned a business and um, started working from home. I thought that'd be a good idea. I get away from all the people that think I'm, you know, a little too much for them and work from home. But uh, unfortunately, that's one that I don't know if it's the TBI part or the PTSD part, but something happened where I came I became agoraphobic. Um, I, I couldn't. Were you answer were you point. were you using at that point? Not at all. No, this is in sobriety. Oh wow! Um, yeah, crazy. And I just uh, early so, I early sobriety. Let me. I just got a couple questions. Early sobriety, or or how long have you been sober? I guess I have been sober about four or five years. And were you doing a program, working with sponsor? I had been um, in the beginning for the first few years, and I, 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 I'm not gonna lie, I, I stopped going to meetings because I just couldn't, I just couldn't be around people. Mm. I don't know what happened, honestly. Mm -hmm. I, I still saw my therapist. I still do see my therapist. Mm. Uh, I peer, I see my own peer. You know, I have my own peer support. I have my own sponsor. It's, it's. Uh, I'm so glad you're telling your story because it is. This is how it goes. You have sort of free-flowing anger and anxiety. It's uncomfortable to be around lots of people. You start withdrawing, and then you become paralyzed. Then you can't go Correct. out. It's this progressive thing. Yeah. Yes, and, and that's one of the biggest issues I wanted to, before I get into my story, is before you, you recognize a problem, you have to see that you have a problem. And a lot of people with PTSD or TBI or MST, they don't even realize they have a problem. I didn't myself. I thought I was just, maybe I'm just agoraphobic, maybe whatever. I'm a tough Marine. Yeah. Maybe it's just depression. Who knows? Whatever. Uh, you know, that's what I honestly thought it must be depression or something. But to get out of it, you know, I decided I'm going to go do something I love. You know, I, I, I decided I always had a gift with dogs. I've always part-time trained dogs, but I never got a certificate or went to any type of schooling. So I, I always had mentors. So I decided since I'm home doing nothing, I might as well at least go to an online college for dog training. And I, I did that. I got my, my 
my degree from that. And then I had to go and do a certain amount of uh, different mentorships with different people. And they all quickly realized that I was already a trainer. You know, they, they were like, why are you even here? So I have a gift, you know, I always have. And um, so I decided that, you know, it's time for me to do something with my life um, and not just sit in this house and then be miserable making all this money, but being miserable. I'll, I'll tell you, I, I love your story for uh, several reasons. One is that people need to pay attention to meaning making. They have to pay attention to that. Doing something of purpose, doing something of meaning is everything. Now, I don't want to be glib about this. You have to have enough money to get by and you have to be, you know, you have to be wherever you need to be to be able to focus on meaning making. I understand you have to not be in pain and you have to be able to eat and, and sleep with a house, you know, to be able to do, do meaning making. But once you have some degree of stability, pay attention to meaning making, number one. Number two, uh, I, you know, we are, we are prone – Again, this is I'm, what I'm describing is why I love your story. We are prone in this society to go, oh man, you know, Ryan's agoraphobic and depressed. We better get him some medication. We better make him feel better. And in reality, I, I like it when people solve it on their own. They find solutions and make changes and grow out of it. And lo and behold, their symptoms get better. Okay, well, I'm really glad you said that because some of the reason I believe I became more agoraphobic is because at one point they had me on 16 different medications. Jesus Christ. Well, that's what it sounds like. It sounded like the medicine was – it had a flavor of yeah. the adverse effect of something they you were taking. Your, yeah. Yes, but they, they'll, they'll, they'll give you one thing for this, and then for the yeah. side effect, they'll give you another one, and then for the side effect of that, they'll give you something else. And, uh, so uh, I, so I, let's, I let's, talk, let's talk <laughs> – good, new psychiatrist. Let's talk <laughs> philosophic – whoops. Am I okay? My, my sound found, sounds funny. Okay. Oh, I know. I kicked my headphones. That's what it was. Um, it, there's a there's an interesting philosophical point to be made here because I had a similar experience in my own life where I was 19, 20, severely ang anxious and agoraphobic and depressed and just started gritting down and making change. I'm fine now, Gary. It's all working fine. Uh, I just grit down and made change and grew and just I and and by the way, these, I don't know if you had this experience. You know, when you decide to change directions and start doing something purposeful, don't you feel like you're sort of have an insurmountable task ahead of you? That's what I I felt like I was looking up a wall that went to infinity. But I thought, I'm just how do you do that? You just one peg at a time, just start climbing that wall. Keep plugging away. Yeah. That's what I like to tell people. Keep plugging away. Just keep your eye on the prize. You know, don't look back. That's why the rearview mirror is so small and the windshield so big. You can't keep your eye in the rearview mirror. You're going to crash. You and, 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 mili and, and, and military training is a lot about how do you do insurmountable tasks, right? Because you're often asked to do things that seem impossible and you just start it. You just start doing it. I mean, I myself was a nuclear, biological, chemical warfare defense specialist. Oh, at the shit. end of my schooling, yeah, at the end of my schooling, um, I'm getting PTSD. We to, yeah, we had to spend 12 hours in a gas chamber, and and someone did lose their mask, and was we never heard from them again. It's all top secret. Need to know. I probably shouldn't even be talking about that, but you know, dangerous things happen, and people do die, even in training in the military. People don't realize that. No, I know. And like, you like turn your life over, regardless if you go to combat or not. You're signing your life over to the great United States of America so that people can enjoy their freedom. So, you know, people die all, all different ways. Well, well, let me let me again point out that I'm in this training program where I trained with special ops staff. And two things. Uh, during training, one of them said, if you die, that's just nature's way of saying fail. Because they have pass-fail on every task. It's like fail, fail, fail. And if you watch Top Gun, the new movie, you notice when they when they get tagged, they just go fail. And fail is, fail is a whole different meaning when you're out there in the desert. It's like you really you really take it seriously. And uh, what was I? What was my point going to be? Oh, and then once we were out, one of the the uh, staff told me he goes, "I just live in fear that somebody's going to die out here because they could." And I thought, "Wow, well." That, that's what we went through. I, I'm glad to have done it. I'm glad to shine a light on it. And you're making that point again. You. Yeah, you're making that point again. That, that the guys go out there and gals and they just give it all they got and they understand it's dangerous. That's part of the deal. Yes, sir. So um, I don't know if you want to go back to how we got started. Or... Please keep going. Okay. So um, back to school. I finished my school. I, I you know did very well in my school. I did all my mentorships, and but. 
and I, I started volunteering. It just so happened I was praying. I'm not going to lie. I was in the bathroom. I was looking in the mirror. I said, this is not a Marine anymore. What happened to you? You got to do something with yourself. You got to get out of the house. Stop being such a baby. With that, I hear a commercial in the background for a, uh, a service dog training program. Mm. And my goal was to become a famous dog trainer and then just train service dogs for veterans once I'm established, maybe 10, 15 years down the line. But instead, this happened. Um, I, I decided, you know, I went in my car, got back out of my car, went in my car, got back got out of my car. But I forced myself to go. I met the trainer and, you know, I was late. You know, they were all training their dogs. And he said, well, what do you know? What do you know? And I said, I, I'm already a dog trainer. I went to school, this and that. He said, ah, everybody here's a dog trainer, whatever. I'm going to go get a dog and see what happens. And he went, he admitted afterwards he got his meanest, nastiest dog. <laughs> so that was his mistake. <laughs> and he brought the dog out. Nobody seemed to be able to control this dog. But I had him, you know, licking my face within five minutes. So he was like, you're in for sure. We love you. Come do your thing. And um, so I volunteered there. I got to say, just in volunteering and spending that much time with the dogs, somehow got me going to the gym. So then I started getting physically feeling better myself. I, I started going to the gym at like 4.30 in the morning when no one's there. Um, started feeling physically better about myself. And then mentally just spending eight hours a day, every single day at least with those dogs. Just volunteering helped me be able to go to stores, be able to stop at the way home to stop at 7-Eleven and not rush out and not look at the people in the eyes and like I usually do, or, or avoid it altogether, make my wife do it, which I did that a lot. And, I, and I'm, a, you know, I regret that, but she's a rock. She was my rock. That was another thing I didn't mention. Yeah. Support my wife, our wives. Yeah. The, spouse, the it, spouses of, of people with PTSD are, are saints. Yeah. I, I understand what you're saying. No, I get it. And, I, and I'm grateful for people that support the people they love, even when it's difficult and live up to their commitments and things. It, it pays out. It pays out in most yeah. cases. Um, but yeah, again, really lots of interesting points here in, a, in an interesting way. That story you're telling is a story of recovery. It, it's very similar to recovery from addiction when you're on your knees praying and something drops in, right? Then there you were. So it was like sort of another um, moment of change or another um, moment of clarity, right, uh, that, that people get in recovery. Most people aren't gifted by two, but you had two, it sounds like, which is amazing. And... <clears throat> And the that was the other point I was going to make about oh that the other thing is that the the first in my humble opinion the first big book of Alcoholics Anonymous before the blue book before the big book was written by Saint Augustine Saint Augustine one of the first f and really phenomenal religious philosophers if you ever read his stuff he is an extraordinary thinker and he wrote a book called the Confessions about his story of sex addiction and sounds like alcoholism or something. He's a little unclear about it, but he, he clearly had sex addiction too. And he had a moment on his knees where he heard something in the background say to him, not, it was not a hallucination, it was literally probably somebody in another room or something, said, pick it up and read. And the Bible was in front of him, and he picked it up and opened it to a certain page, and that was the beginning of his recovery. And you had a similar thing. It just happened to be a TV talking to you, but it's you know, go go train the dogs, go do it. Yeah, it's a, it's such a it. fascinating story. These I, I love There's these no moments of change. They're so fascinating I, to me. I, I wish I wrote these all down and journaled them, but I've had so many things with this with this enterprise as far as uh, coincidences. Mm that are, you know, a bazillion to one. Mm -hmm. um, and they just keep happening and happening and happening and happening because we're doing the right thing with the right motives. And I believe that, you know, we're being helped out. I, I hate to say God, but I think God's helping us Something out. Something bigger than you. Something bigger uh, than you. Leave it, power, leave it at that. Because people it. get weird when you say God. So just go, yeah, something bigger I'm than a, me. I'm a 501c3. I can't say, I mean, I'm not saying religion. <laughs> I'm not religious. I just believe in a higher power. That's all I'm trying to uh, say. There's certainly something bigger than you out there, which is I simply so. factually true. And yes. I will tell you also factually true for you to sustain your recovery. You have to believe that <laughs> to your toes. Yeah. So yeah. there you go. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not running the show. And then now tell me a little bit about what you've done and what you want to do and if people want to be a part of this or something, I tell what, what, what are your, what are you doing? Who have you helped? How have you helped them? And what do you want to do next? Or what do you want people okay, to do to help so, you? 
So, well, basically what we did was um, I worked for this company, uh, this this shelter. I was going to leave. I told them I have to go out on my own and go private. And they said no. They offered me a very large salary and sent me to Quantico to get um, to finish off my service dog training because service dogs are, you know, they're protected under the ADA. There's, they're very difficult to train. It takes a year and they have to do at least one task. All of mine do at least five hmm. um, to help the person with 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 that needs the service dog. Um, so that, you know, it was great that that shelter sent me there, but then COVID hit and they said, we have to shut down the program. Yeah. And now I got, you know, 20, I think at the time, 28, 30 something vets that I'm just getting them to get out of their house and get Shit. comfortable get leaving their house. Now I'm going to have to tell them, oh, you got to isolate for the next three or however long. So, so I, I told them we can't do that. They said, well, by law, we can't do that. So I, I had to quit and start my own 501c3. So that's how Semperfy Service Dogs was born. Well, that's I, good. I couldn't, I couldn't let those veterans down. Um, I just couldn't do it. And and I needed it myself, for myself. I had to give it away. If you don't, you know, if you just keep everything and don't give it away, you're not going to keep it for very long. So anyway, um, that's how we got started. And what we do, since we had no home base, which is probably a good thing, um, I bought a home um, in the acreage, which is in West Palm Beach with two and a half acres and a tiny little house on it. We were going to, my wife wanted the opposite, but you know, <laughs> we had to do it for the 501c3. And uh, so it's basically a, a large house to train dogs. And um, we still don't have a home. We're looking for a shelter. We're looking for donations for a shelter. We have many different people, people from the retreat trying to think of something to help us out. But right now, as it stands, um, we do all of our training at different places, public uh, places, the mall, police departments, fire stations, um, Dick's Sporting Goods, Kohl's, you know, you name it, any store, any place you would normally go to, Home Depot, Lowe's, we're constantly changing. We've gone on trains to, to um, you know, to try to get the dogs used to riding on an airplane, you know, because they have to sit underneath your feet, which was another issue that I wanted to bring up, but that's, we'll do that later. Um, but we do a lot of training. I basically train the dogs. It takes me at least usually three months, three to four months to train the dogs personally to where they are able to go out in public and you wouldn't know if they're a service dog or not. They're hmm. that well behaved. Nice. Once that happens, then I hand them over to the veteran who already has been training with my service dog. So they know the commands and they know everything. My service dog basically teaches them what to do. Um, so by the time they get their dog, they already know how to handle the dog. They already know the camaraderie of all of our veterans were like a big family and it's a quick, easy transition. They get their dog, they take them home and then we give them a 90 day grace period because I got to learn a lot of things over the years working at that other place where, you know, some things were not right as far as you don't just give a dog. I don't believe in just giving a service dog away because service dog will regress mm. uh, within a month. So they need constant ongoing training. So if you know, you're going to train a dog for a year and just give it away. I had a, thing where this guy came back three months later with a dog that I didn't even recognize anymore. It was mm. such a terrible error. Mm. And this was a red service dog. So I realized that's a problem. So when I started my own thing, I, I decided I'm going to keep the people afterwards for as long as they like. And we do three lessons a week plus one picnic or outing a month where we'll go to a ball game or something like that. So the veterans have the camaraderie. The dogs are at one big pack. They all know each other and love each other and they learn from each other. Um, it's a lot easier to train that's where the monks and new ski come in. Um, pack training is a big thing that I do that a lot of people don't do. Um, when you, when, when I have my lessons with these veterans and you see, you know, eight dogs doing a downstay and one not looking around, he looks at the other seven dogs and he does the downstay without me and have usually having to say anything. So it does help the pack, the pack training model. Um, but we would like, we are trying to save her kennel so that we can have more dogs and I can help more veterans and more dogs. If somebody wants to participate or if somebody feels they know someone that needs a service dog, what do you want them to do? They can go to www.semperfyservicedogsplural.org. That's semperfyservicedogs.org. And they can apply. We want as many veterans. We just got a new veteran yesterday. I'm getting her a dog today. Um, it's a completely free service for the veteran. There is no charge whatsoever. Um, and they can apply right there online. Otherwise there's numbers there they can call for our veteran liaison or myself personally. I have no problem talking to anyone. Great. Um, and then if, uh, just before I let you go, give us some, uh, training tips. You know, everyone has a dog. What, what's the sort of, what, what do people get wrong other than the fact that it's the, it's the owner that's always the problem and not the dog. 
which I, I've, I've learned many, many different ways. But are there, are there a couple of like techniques that people or attitudes or in pieces of information that could improve people's approach to training? There? First of all, I would say two things myself as, as somebody who's trained a few dogs. It's A, it's you, not the dog, number one. And, and B, you have to train the dog. It's, it's, it's unfair to the dog if you don't teach it how to communicate with you. So would you not teach your kid how to speak? I mean, it's just crazy. So th- that's my position. But tell me, give me another couple of couple of. Points. Well, when I was doing private lessons, you know, I can tell you, you know, from doing private lessons that the people that their dogs listened to them and it worked out were the people who did the most work. They After I left, they do repetition after repetition after repetition. That's how what dogs understand. Practice. More than anything else. And with positive reinforcement, um, there, there are four quadrants to operative training. Um, positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement positive training and negative training. And a lot of people think of negative reinforcement as maybe abusing your dog, but the most I see is including my wife doing it or even myself, negative reinforcement would be like, um, your dog does something wrong, but it's cute. So you give him a treat anyway. Right. Let's say your dog's jumping up all over you and you say, ah, yeah, yeah. you pet him. That's negative reinforcement. I see that all the time. And, and if you wanted to, and then they complain about the behavior afterwards. You want it to stop. You can't reward your dog for doing it. You have to take something away. That's the negative. Right. That, that's the part people miss is, is, is negative reinforcement that. pulling something away that they want, a, a negative reinforcement. If you're doing something active, that's called punishment, <laughs> and that's different. And punishment doesn't work very well, and certainly not as well as right. negative reinforcement. Correct. There's positive punishment and negative punishment. Positive yeah. punishment would be something. same kind of thing. It, it, it's, it's all the same basic thing where uh, even on the opposite side, I see a big, a big problem will be separation anxiety. Mm. People always ask me, how do you get rid of that? When you leave the house, it's a very simple thing to do. You can do it quickly. Uh, leave the house for a minute, come back, leave the house for two minutes, come back, leave the house for three minutes, come back and do that over and over and over again. So, and don't make a big deal out of it. Mm. Don't say, bye. I love you. I love uh, you. I yeah. love you. I yeah. love you baby. Don't do it coming in. Don't do it going out. When I come in, I walk right in. No dogs bother me at all. When my wife walks in the door, they all jump on her, and she does. Oh, I love you, all. I love you. All. And she likes it, so I don't. You know, I don't mind that. But I have what she so wants. Many clients, like, why does my dog do this to me? And then, like, if people come over, they jump on them. You're causing it. You know, you're causing that. Always. Behavior. So, Always. yeah, those are the two biggest ones I get. Well, listen, c- congratulations on your recovery. Congratulations on the Semperfy Service Dogs. And uh, thank you for your service. And uh, I-, I appreciate what you're doing, and I appreciate you sharing it with us today. Thank you. And I appreciate what you do, Dr. Drew. You're, you're an amazing human being. Thank uh, you very that's much. very kind, Ryan. We'll take a little break and be right back with your calls after this. About ZocDoc. Before ZocDoc is the only free app that lets you find and book doctors who are patient reviewed, take your insurance, and are available when you need them, and can t- treat pretty much all typical common medical conditions and concerns. And when you're not feeling well, you don't want to be worrying about things like this. And no surprises, no I mean, surprises may be you know useful in television dramas, but not with medical care. And with ZocDoc, no alarms, no surprises. You choose from thousands of patient-reviewed physicians and specialists, browse doctor profiles, update, and then verify your insurance information, and then get the care you need with whom you want, when you want, without the hassles. It's so easy. ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com slash Drew and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That is ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C.com slash Drew, ZocDoc.com slash D-R-E-W. I know a lot of people are looking for affordable and healthy ways to improve the water their family drinks, and people are very hesitant about tap water these days. That's why you might check out AquaTru, A-Q-U-A-T-R-U. AquaTru purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation, no plumbing, and removes 15 times more contaminants than the ordinary pitcher filters. Having safe clean water is the last thing you want to worry about. And you want to do it without the expense and without all the excess plastic of bottled water. And you get the same quality. Don't worry anymore about tap water. 
When it's filtered with AquaTrue, it is truly purified. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and makes a great gift. Today, for our listeners, you can receive 20% off the AquaTrue purifier. Just go to AquaTrue.com. That's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U, AquaTrue.com. Enter the code DREW at checkout. That is 20% off for AquaTrue water purifiers when you go to AquaTrue.com and use that code D-R-E-W. Okay, we are back, and I wanted to give you all a little update on some of the stuff I've learned about vaccines and masks and all the craziness around COVID. And I know, Adam, if you listen to Adam and Drew's show, you'll hear us kind of talking around these same issues. But I thought I might give you an update of what I've learned uh, through interviewing probably now two dozen people on my streaming shows about various topics that have been silenced during the pandemic and see if I can sort of piece together for you what I think happened and what information you need to know. Now, I'm recording this around Thanksgiving time. I know you're hearing this a bit later, but I still think I can give you information that will be sort of, mm, it will not change. Some of the things I'm thinking about and have seen and, and worried about will not change. It'll just become more clear and we'll get more information as we head into the new year. So... Let me just start, oh gosh, let me start with the vaccines. So here's, here's the thing about vaccines. We you know, have now had a bivalent booster, meaning it, it protects against the old versions of the virus and some of the newer versions, tested on mice and then unleashed on the human population. Seems to be going okay. Uh, we are seeing several things, and I'll tell you about some of the stuff we are seeing from really the boostering primarily and the second shot of Moderna. I would say the second Moderna shot and the boostering, and Moderna more than Pfizer. In fact, there was just a study out that really uh, took aim at Moderna. It's a higher-dose vaccine, so naturally there's going to be more complications. So, so this vaccine is now rolled out, and um, it the, the good news, people, the first thing they're asking is, you know, why do they put the old virus in this vaccine? Well, turns out some of the cellular immunity that we've been getting from the previous vaccines really have been good. It's been helpful, we think, in preventing more severe disease. The duration of protection of the vaccine is about three to six months. It's very short. And it doesn't prevent infection. This is the thing that everyone has to understand. Does not prevent infection and has no impact on transmission. And there were some recent revelations about transmission that shows that the vaccine manufacturers knew this from the beginning. And yet our government chose to use it as a way to leverage and wedge people into getting the vaccine. In other words, the fear campaign that they consciously chose was you're going to kill your grandmother if you don't get the vaccine. And if you don't get the vaccine, you're not community-minded and you're not interested in protecting other people. In fact, you're a murderer. That's how far down the road people went. And back when I was very concerned about the extreme rhetoric that the press was putting out, where people who had no business having a medical opinion, like the New York Times editorial boards, were mandating things like lockdown, by the way, procedures that have never had never been contemplated before, and all of a sudden that became a policy because why? Well, they were having success in China, which was false, was a lie, and still to this day does not work. The thing about all of the mitigation so-called efforts that are is troubling, that, that is persistently problematic for me, is they did not work. And I don't think people are coming to terms with that. They're still – they still are sort of deluding themselves that, you know, whenever I say something like, you know, I take aim at lockdown and all the consequences it, it has had, which have been severe – I get people tweeting back at me, yeah, with a million dead, you're still talking about that? It's like, yeah, the, this was a horrible pandemic. The million dead happened, was going to happen, and happened no matter what we did. And all we did was pile on the consequences economically, developmentally for children, emotionally for everybody, substance users dying. We piled it on. The reason we did that is we are public health officials. See, there's a wrinkle in the Constitution. The Constitution in an emergency grants fiat authority to public health officials. And what I have learned 
that that authority can, of course, easily be uh, abused, as they did. But more importantly, many of the people that were vested with this authority didn't have medical training, or they were pediatricians and didn't understand adult medicine. And the decisions they made were terrifically distorted, or frankly, just in, just I don't know where they were came from, and none of it took into a, into account a proper risk reward analysis, which is what they're always supposed to do. Like any mental, medical provider, do no harm. They did lots of harm, and still, there's now FOIA documents that show that Dr. Fauci was out there saying, "Too bad. They should be more scared." We, ha- they, we should scare them even more. We should terrorize them to stay home, which was astonishing to me. Although I do know and I do remember back when in the AIDS epidemic, which I was very involved with during my residency, Dr. Fauci was my, my North Star. I love the guy. I, he was a very important source of information for me and guidance. And he then had some of the seeds of what we saw now. He was telling us young folk, young doctors, that we should tell everybody there are going to be two million deaths, two million deaths, in the same time period that he was was preaching about two million deaths. We ended up with 175,000. And we patted ourselves on the back, said, great, we didn't get two million deaths, we had 175,000. And it's important to remember that AIDS had a 100% fatality rate, 100%, a very different illness than an illness with a 1% to 5% fatality rate that, by the way, AIDS taking away 60 to 80 years of life versus COVID, which was generally taking six months to five years of life away from elderly people. And I will remind you, those of you that were uh, outraged by the numbers of deaths in nursing homes, which you should have been, we did a terrible job protecting these people, but in terms of years of life lost... The median survival for a male who's admitted to a nursing home, not because not for two weeks after a hip fracture, I mean they are permanently placed in a nursing home because they are so debilitated that they need institutional support, meaning two people or more to feed them, wipe their ass, turn them. That male has a median survival six months, six months. And those are the people that were taken out primarily by COVID, not exclusively. And it was, a, look, I'm not mitigating, I'm not diminishing horrible illness bad pandemic, we made it worse, not better. This is the thing that people don't seem to come to terms with. So so our initial policy was mitigation uber alice. The only thing we focused on was shelter in place. And the, the reasoning, again, this is all stuff I've uncovered by talking to people like Peter McCullough and uh, Paul Alexander, who was there in the rooms when they made these decisions. I'll get to back back to vaccines, guys. Don't worry. I'll get you there. Uh, Paul Alexander was in the rooms when they were debating what to do to to bring on these mitigation efforts. Gary, do you know where the six? I think maybe I've told you this before. Do you know where the six feet social distancing came from? It was a teenager who. Oh no, no, that's where lockdown came oh, from. Sorry. I'll tell you that story in a second. It was made up out of whole cloth. It was completely made up. They they literally went into a room and went well. People need to stay away from each other. We'd like them to stay 60 feet away. But let's see, can they be 10 feet? Or what can we? They just arbitrarily, out of the blue, chose six feet. No evidence that it worked, no evidence that it did anything. And the whole world rallied around six feet and still have a weird six foot thing where you see the fucking dots on the floor as you line up at Starbucks and stuff. Those are still everywhere. Paul Alexander tells a story where he raised his hand and went, uh, I, This doesn't make any sense. There's no evidence. Shut up. Shut up, we're going to do this. We have to do this. There was this weird like intensity that anybody who call, called into question any of the decisions they were making had to they, – they said – this guy – I've had several people who were in the White House at the time describe people getting red in the face and like shaking because you dared to question what they were planning. And that should rec- you should recognize that as cognitive dissonance, everybody. When you start attacking a person for an opinion, it's because you don't have a good defense. And that's cognitive dif- dissonance read, writ large. So it was lockdown uberalis, shelter in place, which, by the way, let's remind yourself, that is a term reserved for a nuclear attack. Jesus. So, I, God, when our mayor here in Los Angeles kept saying it over and over, I just kept saying, shut up. Stop it. You're going to hurt people with that rhetoric. Any event, shelter uberalis, so we can get to vaccine, then vaccine uberalis. 
Now, that was kind of rational uh, uh, because if they could get to a vaccine quickly and distribute it quickly, they will save some lives that way. Uh, unfortunately, the vaccine didn't end up being as efficacious as we thought, and it may have had some problems associated with it. The problem now from a policy standpoint is we have never backed away from vaccine uberalis as a policy. So now you have the government making wide, wide, wild reaching recommendations for vaccine therapies that they don't have, again, the evidence to back up. So things like 12 and above need to be vaccinated, again, invented out of whole cloth. Why are they doing that? There's, I, I tweeted a couple of articles that showed no myocarditis after COVID in a young person. Significant, rare, not common, but significant incidence of myocarditis post-vaccine. So you're taking healthy people and making them sick for no reason. Of the 600 pediatric deaths from COVID in 2021, my understanding was they were all children that were very ill, probably would have died of influenza or other viruses. And so what are we and, – and then again, by vaccinating children, you are not protecting anyone. The vaccine lasts a few months, and it doesn't prevent transmission. So what is it we are doing? I don't – I literally don't understand it. Now, what I have come to also understand is that there's a crazy, cozy relationship between the FDA and the regulatory health commissions in the government and Big Pharma that essentially everyone in the executive structure and on the boards have come from regulatory organizations like the FDA. So there is this extremely cozy relationship between these, these entities. And I saw John Campbell, a nurse, we should look at his YouTube. He's, he's been pointing out some of these things lately. And uh, he looked at the contribution to the budget of the health regulatory commissions in Western countries all over the world. And he found that pharma provided somewhere between 75% and 95% of their budget in every single government. That is that the problem, uh, uh, the people that are concerned about big pharma, everybody, look, there's lots of good people working in pharma who are working to help and try to make a difference. But this cozy relationship biases. It creates bias, and it moves things in a certain direction. It's not a guy twirling his mustache showing up with a bag of cash. That does not happen. It really doesn't. But other sorts of biases and motivational distortions do. And now you have the CDC recommending the vaccine under an emergency use authorization for five-year-olds and above, I think it is. And the EUA protects the drug companies against liability. So there's no liability under the EUA. Now, the EUA will expire. But, Gary, do you know how to create permanent liability protection? When you Yeah, I do. And I know that the Internet is saying that I'm all freaked out about my vaccine thing, but I don't care about my vex having taken the vaccine. Yeah. I am fearful of what you're about to say, which is they get, what, lifetime blanket immunity if they can mandate it for my child to be able to Correct. go to school? Correct. That's fantastic because that's what I want my toddler Correct. to get right now. That's yeah. just if absolutely they, If they great. put it on the vaccine schedule and that becomes part of the, in some states, the requirements for going to school, that then they have permanent immunity from liability. And they're angling for that. And the FDA and the CDC seems to be going right along with it. And that is where people like Robert Kennedy, uh, who I think he's over his skis and an excessive in some of his opinions, but he kind of alerted me to this phenomenon. I thought, oh, boy, that seems to be like a problem. And then you've got John Campbell out there. Again, he's a nurse with a PhD, sort of looking at the international landscape and finding a lot of the same stuff. So here we are. Now, on top of that, if you listen to the interview I did with Dr. Mulhatra, you will see the concerns about the cardiac manifestations and the superverticular arrhythmias and these things we are seeing a lot of and the fact that myocarditis is a very serious condition and we still don't know the long-term consequence yet of young people who get uh, myocarditis. But the, the, the next layer that I don't think Mulhatra and I really got into and I'm trying. This is the part I'm trying to figure out. I, I is that we are seeing excess deaths all over the place, particularly in countries that had a massive 
mRNA vaccine rollout. Now, I do not know that the vaccine is the problem. In fact, I doubt it. I kind of doubt it. Uh, it's not helping, but I don't. I don't. Doesn't make sense to me that we'd, we'd see it. We'd see it if we're really causing an increase in all-cause mortality, cardiac stroke, um, uh, and, and cancer. I do think whenever you see clotting, that is stroke, embolus, ca cardiac events, myocardial infarction, go up after the vaccine. I think that's the vaccine. But all the other causes, I'm I. My bet is going to be it's going to be proven to be lockdown, that lockdown did it. So it's going to be some combination of these things. Now, before we sort of uh, talk about there being an increase in all-cause mortality, it's all based on a model. And if you've learned nothing else during the pandemic, models are highly inaccurate. And we have to first decide, is our model of anticipated mortality accurate? Are we able to predict accurately what we think the mortality rate should be? And that word should is not really accurate, but would be, that may be a little more accurate. Then above that determines excess mortality. And so first we have to say with certainty that that actually is excess mortality. I'm betting by the time you hear this, there will be some data and it will start to look like there's increase in uh, stroke, myocardial infarction, cardiac events, uh, other embolic disease after the vaccine, and things like cancer screening and other sorts of uh, lack of, of medical care from the lockdown uh, are contributing to the other causes of all-cause mortality. Okay, so there's – I hope that all makes kind of sense for you because it, it is – I decided I'm not going to take calls. I still might take calls if something slips in here, but I, I thought I rather would give you an update on what I've been thinking about and what I have learned from talking to the people that were silenced. Now, the other the other source of information that, that's going to create a lot of outrage are these things called FOIA documents, which are sort of public access to information that uh, are, is legally mandated. And we're starting to see emails that are so clearly <laughs> – uh, oh, government overreach and using, A, their own authority to harm Americans. And by the way, there's an interesting article out on a platform called Minerva. Uh, it's an Israeli document, I think, where they looked at the people who had been silenced and crushed and whose lives had been altered during the pandemic. And there was interesting pattern to it. Virtually all of them were high-level academics at the peak of their career, were often funded by the National Institute of Health and were very much known to people like Walensky and, and Fauci. Highest level professional standing, teaching in the medical schools, decades of clinical experience behind them, unblemished. These were the people they chose to attack rather than, as they did in Florida, if you remember Ron DeSantis brought them in and had a big symposium and said, what can you tell me? What's going on here? They did the opposite, and literally now there are emails documenting them talking to each other about how are we going to crush these marginalized whack jobs, these people with marginal opinions, whose opinions almost all turned out to be if not exactly right, like Dr. Bhattacharya, Bhattacharya is going to be the poster child for the excesses. I keep saying it, the excesses of the pandemic. That guy is the highest level professional. He's just a upstanding dude. He is the guy that just wanted to raise his hand. He, he put, He's the one that wrote the Great Barrington Declaration, which was criticized so thoroughly, and just said, we can do this better without hurting so many people. That's all he really said. We can do this better. We know how to do this. There's a whole discipline of infectious disease. But because the federal powers that be, the public health agencies, had been infected by their Chinese counterpart, literally the Chinese Communist Party was dictating these people's policy. It was flawed. It was false. It was untrue. And they bought it hook, line, and sinker. And they've yet to apologize for it or even to reflect upon it. You'll notice also the whole idea of the the wet market is falling apart as the source of the vaccine. I saw something uh, just the last couple of days that showed that the viral presence was highly concentrated in uh, toilets and latrines and, and the uh, 
and the uh, sewage system, which is exactly what you'd see from human transmission directly from an outbreak. No animal byproduct. It goes right from the lab to the toilets to the to the general population. So they they were infected by all this, and they were wrong. And they need to apologize. They need to fall on their sword. They need to make sure this doesn't happen again. I think you all need to think about this and approach your various states or countries, for that matter, if you're listening elsewhere. You need to find a way to curtail the authority of public health. As simple as, just a simple addition as show your work, give us the risk-reward analysis, and then present that to the elected officials, and they are the ones that have the authority to determine what we do with that information. Again, Florida was the perfect rendition of this. It's what exactly should happen. He brought in all the experts, listened to them all. I can't mandate lockdown because there's no evidence for it, and he was right. That should be a model for how public health is done. We don't, don't give public health authorities who, by the way— I've also found uh, that you know the two other several other things I've discovered during this thing I've been talking about for a while is that medicine has become overly centralized. Most people that are non-surgical doctors are employees now or are scared of their employer. And this centralization is not it's anathema to medical care. It, it's just not how medical care is done. And what was the other thing I was gonna say? I lost my train of thought. Finally I lost my train of thought. I knew I would eventually. Um well, back to curtailing the public health authority. Oh, now I know what I was going to say. The training of public health, I've noticed in recent decades, doctors all the time now have MPH after their name. That never happened in my day. You did it only if you wanted to be an administrator in a large organization. Now it seems like masters of public health are sort of cool to get. And I'm coming to understand the training of MPH is off base. It's not clinical. It's not medical. It is sociological, and it's biased. It seems that its priority is equity, not equitable distribution of resources, but equity of outcome, which in medicine is impossible. It's not even a sensible thing to talk about how you get a 22-year-old male with a pneumonia to the same place as a 75-year-old female with diverticulitis and a peritonitis. They're not going to end up the same. It's not the same thing. You can equitably distribute the resources to help these people. Absolutely. All about it. But equity of outcome? Insanity. And if you notice, that contributed to some of the insanity of the, a lot of the policies early in the pandemic. I remember the – I was – you know if you remember me talking about this early on – the uh, the vaccine distribution was all about equity, and I couldn't get the vaccine because I wasn't I I needed to be pushed down so other people could be brought up, till we could make get to the same place. And of course, I got COVID, arguing that I should get the vaccine because I took care of COVID patients and I could be used. In fact, I would volunteered at that point for the for the. Um, we had a, a at our hospital. We had an outside ER. We had just a tent just for COVID patients. They said, "I'll, I'll serve there. Give me the vaccine. I'm in. No problem. I, I'll, I'll do it for free. I want to. I want to make a difference here." Got COVID, and as opposed to giving it to people who didn't really want it, even or came from communities where those added risk. I, it was just the stupidest, bullshitty kind of nonsensical, blowhardy, feel good not good medicine approach. And it really, it, it and I've heard this from other people that have done med, uh, public health training, that it, it's distorted. And again, here in Los Angeles, we have a sociologist who has no clinical experience making the decisions. And it's, it's, it's apparent in the policies and the destructive, uh, destructive consequences it has had. All right. So there's the update on vaccine, excess mortality, Cardiac stuff again. Do do listen to Dr. Malhotra and I talking about this in more detail. It's kind of an interesting conversation. Lockdowns, shelter uberalis, vaccine uberalis, centralization of medical care, employee employerization of doctors, and the wrinkle in our constitution that grants fiat authority to health mental excuse me public health providers. This all is sort of coming into consciousness. It's coming into focus. I certainly didn't realize any of this. 
and I'm now acutely aware of it, and the extreme liability associated with the status quo. We have to change it. There has to be, I guess, a, I, I'm not an expert in this stuff, but maybe we should talk to, we got to get Harmeet Dillon in here once she's done with the elections and things and talk about what we can do about this because I, I imagine it's going to be state by state curtailing the authority of public health and requiring that. And by the way, I think one of the most egregious things, two, two most egregious things in this whole deal, well, three, A, crushing people of alternative opinions who come from high-level academic standing rather than listening to them and see what we can learn, to using fear as a public health policy. That should be illegal. That's disgusting. It, that harms people. Panic never makes things better under any circumstances. Fear as a public health policy should be condemned. And then now I'm running out of steam, you guys. What was my third thing? Uh, fear crushing. Uh, well, I guess, mm, oh, the other thing should be to kind of sort of show your work, show your work and look at the risk reward analysis and let the elected official determine what to do with it. And the elected officials need to have some sort of um, authority not to listen to the public health input of their, of their people because they've just listened to them. And, and that's a terrible policy. Just, okay, whatever the person says, she's my public health official, I'll just listen. No, no, that's a terrible policy. And you, you should be, and people should be held accountable. And then finally, I guess the amnesty issue. Let's just move on, everybody. Just forget it. We didn't know. Now we did know. Lots of people knew. You, you burned us at the stake. You burned us at the stake. You harmed us. Now, I'm not saying it should be tit for tat, but we need to see serious apologies and serious curtailment of the, of the setup that allows for people to be harmed by their public health authorities. That's just so ridiculous. And then finally, having pediatricians in that position, having non-clinical people in those positions, mm, we might want to do something about that too. The reason the pediatricians are in that position is because they're the vaccine people. And most of public health is really about vaccine distribution and policy. But Pandemic requires adult medicine, typically, and pediatricians have no good judgment on that. I, I talked to Dr. Peter Hotez, who I liked, a smart guy, but he was freaked out about long COVID. And the, your brain shrinks. You, the, the England had brain shrinkage. Yeah, when you're an old person and you get severely ill, your brain shrinks. That happens a lot. Very common. Guess what? Goes back to normal. If you're 85, sometimes it doesn't, but that's all serious illness. So shut up. Let's just let's just get through this. And when do we become such pussies? Seriously. When do we become such pussies? The life, life presents serious challenges. They're dangerous. Shit happens. We are biological. We need to face these things head on and not cower and shelter in place and really question. Whatever happened to question authority? That was supposed to be the press. They've just been asleep at the wheel during this. And we need to really start to think about some of these things that have been exposed during, during the pandemic. So finally, my last notes are on the vaccine. I am still vaccinating my elderly patients. It is clear to me after the age of 75, regular boosting has benefit. I've had experiences with Paxlovid where it, it stops the illness in its place, man. You, you just get better the next day. A lot of rebound. And the rebounds have been kind of nasty. And so I, I've not been you know, super happy with that. That's been a, you know, sort of unpleasant. Um, and... I don't want people to have to go through that, right? If you're elderly and you're going through that stuff and you can do something to improve situation, I'm willing to do it. And I, I'm not seeing, I'm just not seeing it, the cardiac problems or increase all-cause mortality. I'm not seeing, I'm, I'm boosting the hell out of my elderly patients that are motivated, that want it. I discuss the risk reward with them. Uh, and they usually they usually want it and take it. And they're not getting sick. They're not, they're, they're getting, you know, mild COVID when they get it. And they're not getting other things at some rate that looks weird to me. They're aging as they normally do. My 95-year-olds are becoming 96-year-olds. They're not getting cancers. They're not deteriorating. They're not getting weird immune reactions. They're just not. It's just not happening. Now, could it happen? Yeah. Yeah, I got, I got my eye out for it. I'll be watching the data. And maybe by the time I say you hear this, there will be something a little more in that direction. I don't know. In the meantime, I think I'm doing the right thing. It is under the age of 65 where we don't have the data. We don't know what we're doing. And I'm worried. I'm worried that this excess mortality might be real. I'm worried that the 
the incidence of myocarditis and supraventricular and cardiac arrhythmias and sudden death is a real phenomenon where you are making sick, healthy people sick who have limited to no risk from the actual illness. So we got to figure that out. People are attacking me saying, yeah, myocarditis after, you get it after COVID. Never seen it, but I have seen it from the vaccine. And I've seen long COVID from the vaccine. I've seen long COVID from COVID. But I've not seen myocarditis from COVID. I have seen it from the vaccine. I've seen lots of supraventricular rhythm from the vaccine. I'm trusting my clinical experience on this to kind of tilt me towards worrying about this till we have really good data. So again, thank you for listening. Uh, I hope hope this was helpful. I thought it was time for an update. And uh, we'll be back with uh, more uh, great interviews and great guests and your calls next time. We'll see you then. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. All month long on Pluto TV, stream the biggest Tyler Perry movies free. Watch your favorites like Medea's Witness Protection and Medea's Big Happy Family. Join Tyler Perry as he goes on a couple's retreat with Sharon Leal in Why Did I Get Married? Or Idris Elba and Gabrielle Union in the Tyler Perry directed film Daddy's Little Girls. Plus, Pluto TV has hundreds of channels with thousands more movies and TV shows available on live and on demand. Download the free Pluto TV app on all your favorite devices and start streaming now. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free.